The execution of William Burke was said to have been viewed by around 20,000 people. They packed into the area around the head of Liberton's Wind, or paid for the use of windows overlooking the execution spot. Execution of criminals wasn't a new thing to most of that crowd, but there was something special about this man. Even by the standards of the time, William Burke was a criminal with a difference. So why the outrage? And why are Burke and Hare remembered as body snatchers, something we don't have any evidence to say they even considered doing? intends to reveal the story of the body snatchers in Edinburgh and do it in a way which will act as a self-guided tour. If learning about history is something we like, then learning it in the places where it actually happened is something we love. The podcast isn't entirely scripted, so there will be the inevitable er, um, I don't know type of things, not to mention various other noises from the studio. We're keen for this to be as interactive as it can be, so if you've got any questions for us, please don't hesitate to email us on sales at actualeducation.co.uk and we'll try to include the answers in our next podcast. This self-guided tour is based on our Body Snatchers in Birkin Hare, an interactive guided tour around their Edinburgh software. This will let you take a virtual tour around the areas of Edinburgh linked to the Body Snatchers and to Birkin Hare. We believe it will give you an understanding of the body snatchers period in Edinburgh's history. This podcast can be used as an audio-guided tour. We've split the podcast up into sections which correspond to the ones on the downloadable map. Please make sure you check out the website because there's a link in the podcast page so you can get this map straight away. Scene number one. Our tour starts next to Princess Street, one of the busiest and most famous streets in all of Edinburgh. On the west side of Princess Street lie two churches, St John's and St Cuthbert's. St John's is right on the corner of Princess Street and Lothian Road. St Cuthbert's sits just behind this, and this is where we start our investigation of the body snatchers. One of the most obvious ways to deter body snatchers was to make it harder for them to get into the kirkyards in the first place. And when I talk about kirk, um, kirk is the traditional Scots word for a church. So a kirkyard is a churchyard or burial ground. The West Kirk simply increased the height of their walls, but this was only the first in their many attempts to increase security. St Cuthbert's is now known as St Cuthbert's, obviously, but in the past it used to be known as the West Kirk. And although when you're standing in the West Kirk, um, or St Cuthbert's, sorry, when you're standing in St Cuthbert's, you've got the throb of the traffic around you, the hum of um, all the cars and buses and, and thousands of people. I mean, Princess Street's a very busy street. Try and imagine it as it was 200 years ago. Just the new town had just been built. Um, it was still a very quiet, very genteel area. The shops in Brindle Street weren't shops, they were dwellings. This really was quite far removed from the hustle and bubble, bustle of the old town of Edinburgh. Um, so, if you're in St Cuthbert's, look closely at the stonework in the section of wall next to the castle. Um, particular corner, the notes are included in the, in the other side of the map, you can see. And if you look closely at the stonework, you can see the walls being raised by a few feet. A very simple, very primitive attempt by the early church people to make sure that body snatchers had a slightly harder time in getting into the kirkyard. 
So just what was the effect? Well, in March 1742, we know in the poor Portsburg area of town, a mean and ugly group of people stormed the Westport Gateway and seized the Portsburg drum. Beating it as they move, their numbers swell and the city is close to being in their hands, for a body has been found in the house next to that of Martin Eccles, a surgeon. Alexander Baxter being buried in the old West Kirk and the mob wanted revenge for whatever had gone on there and as far as they was concerned there was something very foul. Um, this was a truly despicable time in old Edinburgh. Sorry, this was a truly despicable crime. Body snatchers, resurrection men, corpse lifters, shushy lifters, the many different names all brought a feeling of disgust and anger to the people of Edinburgh. Edinburgh was famous, or should that be infamous, for its mob. We know the Edinburgh mob played a part in the execution of a town guard police captain by the name of John Porteous. That wasn't its only uh, occasion for a rising, it did it quite frequently. Um, and in fact, the civic authorities were often quite scared of just what this bunch could get up to. The riotous group formed many times over the centuries and caused havoc in the closes and winds of the old town of Edinburgh. We now move on to scene two in the grass market. Anatomists were allowed the bodies of executed criminals and of those who died in the correction houses, but this was never going to come close to meeting the increasing demand. If Edinburgh wanted to remain in competition with the rest of the medical centres of learning, such as France and in Holland, then they needed something to work on, no matter how it was achieved. And that basic lifeblood, if you like, of an anatomy lecture theatre was a corpse, a corpse to actually show the students how the human body worked. Maggie Dixon's name is now remembered in a pub only a few feet away from where we're standing just now. Maggie was unfortunate enough to be convicted for concealing the death of her baby. She hadn't killed it, but the law then was far removed from what it is today, and she was sentenced to be hanged in the grass market at this execution spot. When her body was cut down, there was a near tug of war between the anatomy students and Maggie's family. Students were technically in the right, she was an executed criminal, but we can only imagine the rage that her family felt at their attempts to take her corpse. But there's an interesting twist to this tale, and um, a reason why a local public house isn't simply named after somebody that was executed, and that is, Maggie wasn't actually dead. We don't know if the tug of war somehow stirred her or more likely that the pronunciation of death had been made too hastily, but we do know that Maggie came back to Edinburgh and lived a long life. Her family didn't actually find this out until they were on their way to the borders. Um, quite what they thought about this, I, I just don't know, but it was a bit of a bonus. When they brought her back to Edinburgh, there was obviously a bit of head-scratching by the civic authorities, um, but death had been pronounced and therefore the law had been done, so... Anything else was, I suppose, an act of God, or grace of God. Scene 3, Greyfriars Kirkyard. In 1678, one of the earliest incidences of grave robbing in Edinburgh may well have occurred here. The Shaws were a family of travelling people, or gypsies in those days, who'd planned to meet with another family in order to fight another two families. It all seems to be highly organised, but it wasn't quite as well organised as they wanted, because the plans went awry and the Shaws ended up killing their would-be allies. They were sentenced to death and executed. The bodies were laid to rest somewhere in Greatfriars. They were poor people, they were executed criminals, so there's not a, a marker for them today. The peculiar thing is that the next day the body of the youngest Shaw was found to be missing. Now, this could have meant that one of two things had happened. Either the fresh corpse had been too tempting for a medical student or a body snatcher, or the youngster hadn't been dead and he was buried. This wasn't uncommon. In fact, in... Um, Jan Andrew Henderson's excellent book, The Ghost That Haunted Itself, I'm sure he makes the comment that actually in London, 
in various cemeteries that they've been able to dig up, they've actually found that a ridiculously high percent of the people that were actually buried weren't dead when they were planted in the ground, which is um, a truly terrifying thought, actually. Scene number four is also in Greyfriars Kirkyard, and this is the tomb of Gilbert Primrose, one of the very earliest anatomists, and a man whose skills helped put Edinburgh right at the forefront of medical advancement. We'll explore more than one part of Greyfriars, and with good reason, it really is linked to this body-snatching story. If we move our way slightly up past the archway that signifies a hole in the flawed wall, then we eventually come to Alexander Monroe. Now, these, this tomb is... Um, to commemorate two, sometimes three people, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Monroe was an early lecturer in anatomy, and Alexander Monroe had a son who followed in his footsteps, also became head of anatomy, um, also called Alexander Monroe. The joke was that the original man used his own set of notes, which were all very exciting. The son borrowed his dad's set of notes when he was lecturing, and it wasn't quite such an interesting experience. And then Alexander Monroe, the son, he had his own son, also called Alexander Monroe, and also an anatomist, and he was supposed to have used his grandfather's notes, and by this time they were getting a little bit old. Not quite such a popular man. Um, the interesting thing about Monroe Tertius, that's the third one, who's actually not buried here, it's only the father and the grandfather that are buried here, but Monroe Tertius was the man who did the uh, autopsy, if you like, or the dissection on William Burke. And he was also a, a a firm rival of Dr. Robert Knox, who was the man who Robert Bur- um sorry William Burke and William Hare actually sold their their corpses to. So quite important for both the body snatching story and also the Burke and Hare story, which we'll look at next episode. The so if we get on to scene number six, there were many different methods which were used by friends and families to prevent the bodies of their loved ones ending up in a slab in a lecture theatre. Some were extreme if fairly ineffective. Spring guns, landmines, booby-trapped, graves, they were all used. Uh, guards were hired, but of course you needed to have a certain amount of cash to hire people. Um, and if you're slightly poorer, then you just basically had to sit in the graveyard and undertake a watch. Now, this didn't have to go on indefinitely. The whole important part about bodies was the bodies needed to be in really good condition. So after a, a wee while, the bodies would begin to go off and they wouldn't be of any interest to the anatomists. And in Greyfriars, we have a fine example of something called a mort safe. Now, mort safes changed in how they were actually used. Some mort safes were big cages which you could move with a block and tackle and be positioned over a grave until the body had decayed. And, of course, you would pay for the privilege of this. Um, but this one here, if you look at it very carefully, it's it's quite different from this. Um it's now tied together, chained together, but you can actually see that it almost looks like a set of doors on the ground. If you look at each of the four corners, you'll notice there's a hinge not very far away from it. And in the middle, the the two large doors, if you like, actually aren't connected. And that's because when this would have been used, the, we reckon that the bodies would have been buried in here. The mort safe wouldn't have been moved, so you just open the top of the mort safe up, the bodies would be put inside, close it down again, chain it together, and then when the bodies became a little bit too decayed, then they could be buried somewhere else in the kirkyard. It's quite a, a, a unique item in Edinburgh graveyards to have a mort safe like this. There are slightly different ones. If you come to Collington Kirkyard, then they have a very ominous looking mort safe, which is basically just a, a big iron coffin shaped thing that you'd put bodies into. 
So if we now move on to scene number seven, we're now in the old town of Edinburgh, right in the Royal Mile, in the high street section of the Royal Mile. If we now move to 1751, what's now called New Assembly Close, originally this was known as Fairley's Close. In this close lived two neighbours, Helen Torrance and Jean Waldy. Torrance was offered the body of a dead child um, to an anatomy student, but he turned her down. Eventually and tragically, the anatomy student thought better of his rash decision and sought out Torrance. Jean was no longer able to give them exactly the child that she'd offered them, but she had good ideas as to where she was going to get somebody else. And this is where we change from being looking at um, a simple body snatching crime to looking at one of murder. And of course, this is what the difference between Burke and Hare and your average body snatcher was. Burke and Hare, we, we don't think, we don't know, we don't have any evidence that they ever snatched a body out of the ground. We know they killed people. Well, it's the same with Torrance and Wald. They did exactly the same thing. Janet Johnson, the wife of a sedan chair carrier, which is a kind of a, a chair that you'd carry around, the old-fashioned form of a taxi. She happened to visit Waldy and Torrance and was soon being offered increasingly large quantities of alcohol. And alcohol abuse in the old town of Edinburgh wasn't an uncommon thing. Now, at this point, the drunk mother had been totally unaware that Waldy had left the soiree and was now heading down to Johnson's house in Stephen Law's Close, which is part of our tour, New Assembly Close. You can't actually get into it, it's fenced off, but you can go right down Stephen Law's Close, and it really does have this kind of eerie, old-town, dark, misty, and kind of sombre atmosphere to it. So she went into the house. She picked up John Dallas, who's this very, very sickly child, the sickly child of Janet Johnson. Nine-year-old was hoisted up into Waldy's arms and taken back to her lodgings in Fairley's Close. The original plan was to let in the cold night air, which would spell the end for the disease-ridden child. He was deaf, unable to talk, rarely left the house. This was a really bad combination for him to be picked up by somebody he didn't know, for the outside temperature to be taking its toll. Whilst he was having all this happening to him, his mother continued her inebriated state somewhere else in the close. And at this time, John was murdered. Murdering someone to sell their body was something of a skill, however. You couldn't just go at it with a knife or very obviously strangle the person because you had to remember that this body would then be laid out in an anatomy theatre. And although the chances are that most anatomists um, would still want the corpse, there were such demand for these anatomists to have the corpse. Nobody wanted to know that they'd broken the law and nobody wanted to step down the path of eventually being accused of having a hand in the murder. It was bad enough having the, the body, but this was even worse. Um, murdering somebody to sell the body was something of a skill, as we said. You couldn't do any types of stabbing or anything like that. It was likely that the unfortunate John was suffocated before his body was sold to the students. What happened next is a little bit unclear. We're not too sure what, what the next part of the story was, but what we do know was that the medical students were panicked at some point. Poor John's corpse, complete with a very anatomical slice in his abdomen, was found somewhere down Old Liberton's Wind. Now, if we move on to the next place, which is Nidri's Wind, this is where the Martin Eccles demonstration, if you like, the Portsburg crowd, the Edinburgh mob, this is where this kind of was put to a stop. And it's quite a nice place to come and visit because, again, parts of it haven't changed too much in the last few hundred years. So this ugly mob would be like a tide gathering force as they swept along the grass market, skipping the Old West Bowl, heading for the Cowgate. Now, at one point, this was an area of affluence and greenery around about the 1400s, but now it's one of the poorest areas in town. Eventually, they reached here, where we are just now, Nidri's Wind. 
This was where the crowd was eventually dispersed by the city guard, which is the old form of a police force, and other law enforcing organisations. So, was this the end of an early anti-body-snatching mob? Well, yeah, for now it was. And the crowd repeats little the following days when Eccles and some of his students were arrested. The charges, however, didn't stick, and when the mob heard rumours that one of the Kirk officials at the West Kirk may have been involved in body snatching himself, they took to the streets once more. The rioters burned the man's house down, and the orgy of violence lasted 24 hours. Quite tellingly, it said that the authorities did nothing to prevent this happening. So why the outrage? Well, the Scots' Presbyterian religion, followed by much of Scotland, was absolutely opposed to dissection. And in his excellent book, The Scottish Body Snatchers, Norman Adams, and we've put a link to this um, on the podcast page on our website, Mr Adams tells us that the Scots believed that the bodies of those ripped apart in the name of medical science would, quote, not go to heaven in a complete state. There were cases where amputees had their severed limb buried long before their own demise, unquote. So this kind of medical idea that some of us have just now of carrying a, a donor card, which we can carry in the UK, which means if we're involved in a sudden accident, like a road traffic accident, then um, that card proves that we've actually given permission for parts of our body to be used for medical science. And obviously now we've got um, transplants and things, which they didn't have in those days. But certainly this whole idea of you can give up bits of your body, no, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't an option for most people. And you have to remember that for the poor in Edinburgh, the last thing they wanted was this feeling that when they died, they would carry on this kind of poverty, not poverty of lack of finances in this case, but poverty of not having your entire body with you when you went to heaven. We now come to our very last scene, um, and this is New Carlton Burial Ground. Well worth a visit. You can see it um, from the Scottish Parliament. If you're down the, uh, the high street, at the very bottom of the high street next to the Scottish Parliament and Hollywood Panels, then just head round the corner and up the hill. Um, if you visit in winter, it's quite a desolate place. Um, there's only really one entrance into it. It's built on part of a hill. Um, striking looking graveyard. There's no church, that's why it's not a kirkyard, it's actually a burial ground. And in there, crucially to our story, they have a three-storied structure which gave lookouts a view over the whole burial ground. Although we have to realise that little of this area would be visible in a dark winter's night, often a kind of a deterrent rather than a, an actual way of protecting itself. Winter was open season for the corpse thieves for a variety of reasons. Dark nights would allow them to work in greater secrecy. Purpose-built watchtowers like this Loved ones keeping a guard for body snatches would have been less keen to stay in a graveyard and less likely to see anything. Winter is also a much better time for the anatomists because the bodies would last longer in the cold conditions. Not having proper refrigeration capability during the summer months was such a problem that many lecturers paid different prices according to the season. And we'll cover this in more detail when we look at Birkin here. And that's the end of this mini-podcast for just now. If you've got any comments on it, please don't hesitate to fire us an email. Again, it's sales at actualeducation.co.uk. I suppose we could have made this just a little bit more polished, edited various bits and bobs out, but I really want to get these stories out to you. And as I said, at Actual Education, one of the things that I think is really key isn't just learning about history, but learning it where it happened. Um, none of these locations are completely different than they were 300, 200, 100 years ago. Obviously some things have changed, but there's enough of a feeling in each of these locations just to bring back some of the ideas and some of the, the, the feelings that people might have had a couple of hundred years ago standing there. I hope that makes sense. I'm not actually make sure it makes sense to me, but hey-ho. Um, 
as I said, our next um, podcast will be based on Birkin here. As ever, there will be a free resource, which will be another self-guided tour. You can print this out if and when you come to Edinburgh. You can go around none of the places included in any of our tours at the moment and in any of our self-guided tours actually cost any fees. There's no entrance charge to any of them. So it's, it's a free thing for you to do if you're in Edinburgh. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and happy history. All the best. Bye-bye.